Welcome to Tribe Talk's exclusive podcast series in which we talk over multiple episodes with Dr. Daniel Gordis about the heart and soul of Israel as expressed through its history, culture, diverse and vibrant populations, and its innovations. Each 20-minute episode provides a deep understanding of Israel's complexities from the birth of Zionism to the present day. Dr. Gordis, Senior Vice President and Koret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Israel, is the author of more than 10 books and is a widely read columnist in Israel and American media. TribeTalk.org is an information and resource hub for Jewish young adults. It's uniquely designed to give students the tools they need to wisely choose colleges and to address anti-Semitism and feel empowered in their Jewish identity from before they go off to college and through their college years and beyond. And now, Dr. Gordis. Hi. In this segment, we're going to pick up where we left off last time, which was at the end of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. We saw that at the end of the war, the army actually performed quite admirably and was able to bring Israel back to the borders from which it had started and had ended the 1967 war, but the price that it paid was grave. 3,000 soldiers lost in the space of those weeks when it gained no territory whatsoever as opposed to the 700 or so soldiers killed in 1967 when Israel tripled its size. We saw that the military brass was dismissed. We saw that Golda Meir had to resign. And in general, Israelis are beginning to be weary of the Labor Party, which has ruled Israel really with an iron fist uh, since Israel is created by David Ben-Gurion in 1948. After Golda Meir resigns, Yitzhak Rabin is appointed, it becomes prime minister. And Rabin is doing okay until, totally accidentally, a relatively small checking account that he and his wife still had in Washington, D.C. from the days in which he was ambassador was discovered, totally accidentally by a reporter who was following Leah Rabin around D.C. trying to interview her, and she went into a bank, and then the reporter asked himself, why is she going into an American bank? When that, when that account was discovered, Israelis were enraged, not because the amount of money was any, anything terribly big deal, but Israelis just felt this Labor Party has become completely full of itself. We're hurting economically. They have dollar accounts in America. They're corrupt. They're incompetent and so on and so forth. Uh, and the time is ready inside Israel for the rise of a new party. There are elections in 1977. Menachem Begin, who was the head of the opposition all those years, he'd been part of the unity government during the 67 war, but eventually the unity government, of course, disbands, as is always the case with unity governments. He's back in the opposition, and he has lost eight elections in a row running for prime minister, starting with 1949. We're now in 1977. This is his ninth election. And even his supporters are beginning to say this is getting to be a little bit ridiculous. He'll lose this election probably, but then we'll replace him. Somebody else will head up his party. Uh, but for the time being, let's just leave it the way it is. But things are changing. Those Mizrahim, those Jews from North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, the Levant, as it's called, who had been shunted aside by David Ben-Gurion, are beginning to find their voice. They are making their voices known in all kinds of ways. Fascinatingly, they were completely blocked from the Israeli music scene, but they had a whole music industry of their own going, a whole musical tradition. And because Israeli studios really won't let anybody but Ashkenazim in, uh, they start using this new invention called the cassette tape, and they start making cassettes of their music and giving it out or selling it very cheap in bus stations and other places. At exactly the same time, by the way, 
that the Ayatollah Khomeini is spreading his version of Islam and getting ready for the Iranian revolution also with cassette tapes. So they're beginning to find a voice. They're making some progress socially, some progress culturally. And the kibbutzim, on the other hand, which were kind of a stronghold of Labour Party politics, are beginning to stumble. Their elitism finally caught up with them because when all of these hundreds of thousands of North African Jewish immigrants come into Israel, they don't want these immigrants, and so they don't get the benefit of any of this young blood. So the kibbutzim are becoming stodgy and old, the Mizrahim are rising up, and Menachem Begin, even though he is a Polish Jew, so you can't get any more Ashkenazi than that, is ironically seen as a man beloved by the Mizrahi Jews. There's a lot of reasons for that. First of all, Begin was anything but an elitist. He lived very frugally. As the head of the opposition, he and his wife and their three children lived in a one-bedroom apartment. Three teenage children, a boy and two girls, uh, lived in one single bedroom. Um, and he and his wife, Eliza, had an L-shaped sofa, which they had in the living room. And at night, they just pushed the two parts of the L together. And that was their bed for years and years and years. It's a far cry from where politicians in Israel are today. When he was running the Irgun as part of the underground, Begin couldn't care less whether you came from Poland or Morocco, from Germany or Yemen. He had no interest whatsoever in the color of your skin or where you came from or what kind of university degrees you had or whether your parents had money. He couldn't care about any of that. And in the Irgun, unlike in the Haganah, there was complete colorblindness when it came to race. There was simply absolutely positively no discrimination whatsoever. And then when they were campaigning, David Ben-Gurion, who would try to show how Israeli he was, and he would go to these Ma'abarot, which were refugee camps where all of these immigrants who were from North Africa had been put in those years when Israel was too poor to build them real, real housing, he would go there in shorts and t-shirts to show how thoroughly Israeli he had become. And Menachem Begin probably didn't even own any shorts or t-shirts, and he understood what a Polish gentleman understood, which is that grown-ups wear suits and ties. So it could be 95 outside, and there was no air conditioning in those days. He would go to these camps and these ma'abarot, these refugee camps, these sort of shack cities where the very, a very large number of the Mizrahim lived, and he would campaign there. But he would campaign, even though he was Polish, with what seemed to them like great respect. They would say Ben-Gurion and his people come here in shorts and t-shirts, it's ridiculous. This man puts on a suit and tie when he comes, comes to see us. So it's a combination of Golda Meir's, what was seen as incompetence, Yitzhak Rabin, what was seen as being corrupt, David Ben-Gurion being seen as elite, and all of these things put together, the country's ready for a change, and in an amazing surprise, uh, Begin is elected in the beginning of November 1977. And the Israeli media calls it a mahapach, like, which is kind of a, an, an upheaval or a little revolution. It was completely stunning. Nobody in the country expected it. Not long after, ben, uh, sorry, not long after Begin is elected, Anwar Sadat, meanwhile, at, back in Egypt, goes to his parliament and he makes a statement. He says, Menachem Begin and Israel will be very surprised to hear that I am willing, I Sadat, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem and to speak to the Knesset and to begin to negotiate with Israel a peace. Now, to Israelis, this was stunning. People on the inside of Israeli politics knew that there had been a little bit of communication between Israel and Egypt through Ceausescu, who was 
obviously, in, in Europe at that time. And Ceausescu had been told that you could trust Begin, that unlike other Israeli leaders, he was told this guy actually says what he thinks and he means his word. And Begin immediately responds to Sadat's overture and says, you are invited to come to Israel, you're invited to come to land in Tel Aviv, you're invited to come to Jerusalem and to uh, speak to the Knesset. Sadat wants to come on a Saturday. Begin, who is a much more traditional Jew than any of the secular labor party had been, and who also cares a lot about how religious Jews in Israel felt, said, you can come on a Saturday, uh, but after sundown, you can come after Shabbat, which was his way of saying to Sadat, we'll negotiate, but this is a Jewish state you're coming to, Keep that very much in mind. Now, just like Golda Meir had suspected that when Nasser invited Nahum Goldman to go to Egypt and negotiate, she saw, thought it was a trap, many Israelis thought this was a trap also, that the plane would come in from Egypt, the doors would open, Egyptian troops would rush out of the door and kill all of the Israeli leadership who were there to greet this man. And in fact, on the top of the terminal, Israel stationed a large number of sharpshooters, all of them aiming at the door of this Egyptian airliner, so that if that was the case, they'd protect themselves. But of course, that was not the case. Anwar Sadat came out of the plane, stood on a red carpet, and met Yitzhak Rabin, met Menachem Begin, met Golda Meir, met Moshe Dayan, met all of the people who had defeated Arab armies time and time again, shakes hands with them warmly, stands at attention for Hatikva, Israelis stand at attention for the playing of the Egyptian national anthem. Sadat goes to Jerusalem, becomes the first Arab leader to ever address the Knesset, and he says he wants the Sinai back, but he's willing to make peace with Israel. And although many Israelis are opposed to giving the Sinai back, it's very clear that something dramatic is taking place in the Middle East. Now, these negotiations are unbelievably complex. Uh, America, in the form of Jimmy Carter, gets involved in the middle. Uh, they go to Camp David. There are months and months and months of negotiations of starts and stops and ups and downs and successes and failures, which we won't go into now, except to say that actually Begin and Sadat forge a genuine friendship. They actually respect each other. Carter likes Sadat well enough, but Carter despises Begin. And Begin returns the favor and despises Carter and believes that Carter is actually a rabid anti-Semite. There are actually still a lot of Jewish people who believe that Jimmy Carter is a rabid anti-Semite. Reasonable minds can differ, but that is commonly said. Again, after a tremendous number of negotiations, which we can't go into any detail here, on September 28, 1978, at 3 a.m. in the morning, the Knesset finally, finally, after hours and hours of heated, acrimonious debate, Votes 84 to 19 to 17, 84 in favor, 19 opposed, 17 abstaining, to accept the peace treaty with Egypt, uh, which means that Israel is going to have to give up the Sinai. Now, it's important, by the way, also to note that when Sadat came, he actually had a whole series of demands, obviously. The Sinai was only one of them. But one of the other demands that he has was some sort of, it wasn't called a state, an autonomy, an entity, call it what you will, but he wanted a solution to the problem of the Palestinians. And Menachem Begin tells him, there's nothing to talk about. I am not about to make peace with one Arab country and at the same time create another Arab country that's going to be sworn on Israel's destruction. That's just simply not happening. So if you want to make that a, an issue, then we can forget these negotiations altogether. And at the end of the day, Sadat 
like every other Arab leader says, okay, whatever, we'll go on and negotiate and the Palestinians get nothing out of the deal. I just mention this because it's important to understand that there is a long history of people making deals with Israel, saying that they care about the Palestinians, but not caring about the Palestinians at all. The same thing will happen with Jordan just a few years from the time that we're talking about. The Nobel Committee decides to give both Begin and Sadat the, the Nobel Peace Prize. Interestingly enough, while Begin goes to Stockholm to receive the prize and to be, give what becomes a very, very famous speech, Anwar Sadat decides not to go to the award ceremony. He is convinced that if he goes to the award ceremony, he is going to be assassinated because he knows that in recognizing Israel's right to exist, he has become the most reviled Arab leader in the world. And he sends his son-in-law, who's not hated by anybody, and his son-in-law goes to Stockholm and picks up the prize for his father-in-law, whereas Begin picks it up for himself and because of, uh, on behalf of Israel as well. At the end of the day, by the way, Sadat was exactly right. And a number of years later, on, in October 1981, he will be assassinated by his own soldiers. He's watching a military parade and soldiers leap off one of the trucks that is carrying soldiers in the parade. They run right towards the grandstand where he is seated and he, they fire open automatic machine gun fire on him and he's killed on the spot. A uh, huge funeral, Menachem Begin and other Israelis actually attend the funeral. It's another story. Uh, but Sadat was not wrong not to go to Stockholm. He was in fact the most hated Arab leader in the world by the Arabs. Uh, and he did give his life at the end of the day for it. Begin therefore now is surprising everybody. That man who hanged the sergeants and that man who blew up the King David and that man who was running the underground, that man who the British called a terrorist, who'd lost eight elections in a row, who was involved in the Altalena, is surprising everybody. He actually gets elected on the ninth time and then of course he makes peace with Egypt. He, he's the first Israeli leader ever to be able to make peace. It's the right, of course, that does it, not the left. Understandably, because anytime the left wants to do it, the right is going to be opposed. But if the right wants to do it, what's the left going to be even more hard right than the right? They can't do that. So we've, we'll see that every time Israel has made an accommodation that's involved pulling out of territory, it's been the Israeli right that's managed to make that accommodation, not the Israeli left. Things are going to change in Israel again, though, dramatically. And on June 7th, 1981, a group of Israeli warplanes, including eight F-16s, are going to streak off in the sky, heading off towards Iraq. Because Israel has learned that Iraq is building a nuclear reactor. Israel is already a nuclear power, but it is not about to have any country that is sworn on Israel's destruction. Don't forget that Iraq had joined the war in 48 and that Iraq had joined the war in 67. Iraq was still talking about Israel's destruction. There was no way in the world that Israel was about to let Iraq get a nuclear weapon. And they had information leading them to believe that the, the reactor was about to go live, which meant that once that happened, if you bombed the reactor, there'd be a tremendous leak of radiation. But at this stage in its construction, that was not going to be the case. And Israel works on this project for months and months and months. They train over the Mediterranean Sea flying ridiculously low. In fact, several pilots are killed training for the mission, even though in the mission itself, thankfully, no pilots were killed. A whole array of aircraft take off, but it's eight F-16s that are going to be the ones to actually bomb, and they cross Saudi Arabian airspace, they cross Jordanian airspace, but very low, so the radar cannot pick them up. Uh, then they climb very, very high and then dive down at a very steep angle, the way that you need to do for a bombing run. 
And on June 7, 1981, Israel destroys Iraq's nuclear reactor completely. In the space of two minutes, eight airplanes destroyed the reactor completely. The airplanes turn around. Uh, Anti-aircraft fire is directed at them, but nobody's hit, and all the aircraft make it safely back to Israel. The person who was flying the eighth plane, which is, of course, the most dangerous one, because you're the last one to get out, so by that point, the anti-aircraft people have enough time to perhaps get their aim right. The person who flew that plane was Ilan Ramon, who was the youngest of the pilots and at that point not married, and who therefore volunteered to fly the most dangerous plane. He, of course, will be the person who will lose his life as an, as an American astronaut or as an Israeli astronaut flying with Americans uh, many, many years later. It goes without saying that the world condemned Israel roundly for attacking unprovoked a nuclear reactor in a country that didn't even abet Israel. The New York Times, sorry, the LA Times wrote that Begin's terrorism was no worse than Arafat's terrorism. Uh, the UN condemned, the US condemned Israel outright. But during Operation Desert Storm in 1991, Dick Cheney wrote General David Ivory, who was one of the generals at the time. Dick Cheney of the United States of America, obviously the American government, writes to General David Ivory of the Israelis. He writes, thank you for doing what you did in Iraq in 1981, because if you had not done that in 1981, Operation Desert Storm in 1991 uh, would look very, very, very different. So in 1978 and 79, Menachem Begin has made peace with Israel's most powerful enemy, Egypt. In 1981, he destroys what could have been the gravest danger to Israel, which was the Iraqi nuclear reactor in Osirak. And in doing that, he establishes what's called the Begin Doctrine. And the Begin Doctrine, which he didn't name, it of course just became to be called that, the Begin Doctrine said that Israel has a policy that no sworn enemy of the Jewish state is ever going to be allowed to acquire a weapon of mass destruction, ever. Uh, and we saw that policy acted out again in 2007 when Prime Minister Eud Olmert uh, destroyed a reactor that the Syrians were building. And we see it happening in 2020, once again, with all sorts of explosions happening across Iran, which are probably, nobody knows for sure, but are probably the combined work of the United States and of Israel working together through cyber to bring to an end, or at least slow down, the Iranian nuclear project. But again, Israel has a policy ever since Begin that no sworn enemy of the state of Israel, which now of course includes Iran, will ever be allowed to acquire a weapon of mass destruction. So Begin has received the peace prize, but after he receives the peace prize, he attacks the Iraqi nuclear reactor in 1981, and in 1982, his career is gonna change again dramatically. From southern Lebanon, the PLO, which is now a full-fledged army of sorts, uh, is shelling northern Israel relentlessly. And for a very long period of time, young kids in towns like Kiryat Shmona have to go to sleep in bomb shelters. And to Begin, this is just an outrage. Don't forget what we talked about with Hadar. Way back when, when we talked about the, the Beitar anthem, Hadar was this notion of dignity or pride or so forth. He said, it's not dignity or pride for Israeli children to sleep in bomb shelters, terrified night after night. That's not what the Jewish state was created for. And he said, on my watch, that is not going to happen. At the end of the day, Arab terrorists try to assassinate um, Argov, who is Israel's ambassador in London at the time, he is grievously wounded and lives for many, 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 never leaves the hospital, but lives for many, many years blind and in a terrible situation. 
But Bacon uses that specific straw breaking the camel's back as an excuse to go into Lebanon and to try to root out the PLO, which is deeply, deeply ensconced in southern Lebanon. Now again, this, like the 1967 war, like the 1973 war, is a very complicated war with different phases, where Israel is first going to only go in 40 kilometers, and then it goes in longer, then it bombs Beirut. It's a very, very, very long war. We're just going to talk again about some of the key issues here. The first thing to understand is that Israel is going to be in Lebanon for 18 years. It's going to be the first war that is really not a war of immediate defense, but it's going to be a war of choice, so to speak. It's going to be a war in which Israel has very little to show for all its efforts, because look where we are in 2020. Israel eventually pulled out of Lebanon, and Hezbollah is every bit as entrenched in southern Lebanon as the PLO ever was. So Israel really made no gains in southern Lebanon after many, many casualties and 18 years there. But nonetheless, it's there for a very long time, and as the casualties begin to mount, Begin's popularity begins to decline more and more. But what really breaks the camel back in this case is the events that take place in two refugee camps in southern Lebanon called Sabra and Shatila. Bashir Gamayel, who was the head of Christian Phalangists, which is another non-Muslim group in southern Lebanon, is killed apparently by Muslim fighters on September 14, 1982. Israel is now completely in control of southern Lebanon, and in fear of reprisals, there are hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands of Muslims who are hiding out in these refugee camps, which are surrounded by Israeli soldiers, where they think they will more or less be safe. Under Israel's watch, Israel doesn't do anything, but it surrounds these camps while this happens. Christian militiamen enter these two camps of Sabra and Shatila and gun down somewhere between 700 and 800 innocent Muslim men, women, and children. Now again, not a single Israeli soldier filed a single Israeli shot, but Israelis are appalled, American Jews are appalled, and the world is outraged. Let's talk first about what happens in Israel. Israelis understand if you control an area, then everything that happens in that area is your responsibility. And they want to know about Israel's commander in the area, Ariel Sharon, What's the deal? Did you not know? Did you let it happen? Was this a wink and a nod? And again, a commission is formed, and it's called the Kahan Commission. And the Kahan Commission, which Begin, Menachem Begin, is actually forced to go testify before in what for him is a very kind of humiliating, humiliating appearance. Um, the Kahan Commission actually rules that Begin should have known, but Sharon almost certainly did know, and that Sharon can never become defense minister of Israel, which is interesting. He doesn't become defense minister, but he becomes prime minister later on, so he manages to work around that. Uh, at the same time, of course, when he's prime minister, he's the one who gets Israel out of Gaza, which just goes to show you how complicated and unpredictable all of these things are. A whole array of things conspire to break Begin's spirit. He is, his own personal health is failing. He feels tremendous guilt over the number of Israeli casualties of a war that he can't seem to figure out how to win or how to get out of. His wife, Aliza, actually dies during this period, leaving him really existentially alone. Uh, and he will very shortly thereafter just resign. He will say to his right-hand men, I just can't do it anymore. I'm too tired. And it'll kind of bring back 
the story of Theodor Herzl dying at the age of 44 of a heart attack, of Jabotinsky dying at the age of 60 at a heart, of a heart attack. Begin's not going to die, thankfully, but he is just simply completely spent. And he's a broken man, and he resigns, leaves office. And there's a breach with American Jews, too, because American Jews are now fundamentally embarrassed. They didn't like what happened with Kibia when Ariel Sharon had formed Unit 101 years earlier. There were a lot of things that they hadn't loved about what Israel had done in the intervening years, but they had never been deep down ashamed and humiliated by Israel. And this was the first time that they were fundamentally ashamed and humiliated by what Israel had done already in 1982. Now, it's important to remember here, this has nothing to do with the occupation. And it has nothing to do with the West Bank. It has nothing to do with the Palestinian state. But it does have to do with Palestinians. And the first time that American Jews really can't bite their tongues anymore and begin to lash out at Israel does begin to become very apparent in September 1982. Uh, and that's never really going to change all that much. Israel, I'll just point out once again, has very little to show for this, for this Lebanon war. It really has no territorial gains, very few security gains. It's a disaster. Many of the people watching this episode have probably seen Ken Burns' amazing episodes in a series called Vietnam, and there's now actually a series in Israel just coming even out as we're coming out even as we're speaking, only in Hebrew so far, but it will eventually come out in English, which is called The War with No Name. And just like Ken Burns' series showed that the American brass knew early on that the Vietnam was going to be impossible to win, and just like the military knew that it wasn't working, and just like the civilians were being lied to, exactly the same thing happened in Israel. And there are a lot of people, therefore, that call Israel, uh, all is called the, uh, the Lebanon War, Israel's Vietnam. The only other thing that we should point out now about Begin's, about Begin's term in office is that it's not only about foreign policy. It's not only about peace with Egypt. It's not only about the Nobel Prize. It's not only about bombing the nuclear reactor or the disastrous Lebanon war. He actually has a very serious urban renewal plan to try to alleviate some of Israel's pro uh, poverty. Mizrahim, these North African Jews, make much more progress under his administration. Uh, Ethiopian Jews begin to come into Israel for the first time under the Begin administration, though the real flow will be much later under Shamir, who will be the seventh prime minister who will follow Begin. Uh, and of course, it's also important to note that one other major change, more or less internal to Israel, is that even though the labor governments were the governments that had started the settlement project, Menachem Begin is hugely in favor of the settlement project for theological reasons. God gave us this land. And the settlement project continues to move forward at even greater pace. Now, at times when the Israeli Supreme Court rules that settlements were built on Palestinian land, people were sure that Begin, the right-winger, would say, oh, who cares what the Supreme Court says? And he said the very famous phrase, Yesh shoftim Jerusalem, there are judges in Jerusalem, which means that if the Supreme Court rules, we follow the Supreme Court ruling, but when it's going to be possible, we're going to push the settlement project forward, which he did, which is going to make things obviously more complicated for Israel uh, in the years to come. It's the Lebanon War, which is still really in many ways a conventional war, which is going to bring Begin down, and Begin's going to, Begin is going to resign and be succeeded by Yitzhak Shamir. But there is a different kind of war altogether that is going to change Israel and Israel's standing in the international community completely. And that's a war not against standing armies and a war not against terror, but a war against civilian populations, or at least a civilian uprising 
called the First Intifada, which is what we're going to get to in our next segment. Thank you for joining us. We encourage you to listen to the next podcast in this series with Dr. Gordas and remind you to visit our website, tribetalk.org, for more resources.